If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As you know, 1 Corinthians is not Hebrews. Taking a break for one week from our study in Hebrews uh, for a couple of reasons, but I want to read this one passage to you, this one verse, and then we'll begin to talk a little bit about why. First Corinthians 14, verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So, you could ask, why here, why now, why this text? We've just come through, as I've been mentioning, as we've talked about, and as we've witnessed, two weeks of intense focus on outreach and evangelism in our Vacation Bible School. And if you grew up in a household like I did, you have that lull, that feeling of it's over, like after Christmas morning. Okay? Once Christmas Day is done, maybe you have to go over to a relative's house on the weekend after Christmas, but finally, and maybe you're lucky enough to stretch it out to New Year's, but then when it's done, it's like, well, it's over. That's all there is. Let's start the new year. And what can happen is there can be a lull of sloth and exhaustion that sets in after a time of intense work and build up and experience of all the blessings that come with that. But there's something more to it. Why particularly this text? As I've spoken about several times in the past, the responsibility of pastors, ministers in general, uh, is to equip you. If you would turn to Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 10 through 12. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, same word for pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of of Christ until we attain to the to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ what has happened in the history of Christianity is that there has been a very staunch and strict divide between minister and congregant or priest and parishioner or pastor and member. And that is a very unhealthy divide because it misunderstands why there are such a thing as pastors, teachers, prophets, even the apostles. Namely, it's to equip you for the work of ministry. My job is not to be a minister only. It is to make you ministers. 
Typically, we use that word, a minister, to designate those who professionally work in the ministry. But that's you, according to this, according to God. You are intended for the ministry if you're a Christian. And it's my job to equip you. This is one of the most formative passages in my understanding of what it means to be a pastor. So, but why now? Why after everyone, almost without exception, has been intensely helping in some way, some that are recognized, some that aren't recognized, some that are visible, some that are not visible, everyone has been taking part and working so hard the last two weeks, why emphasize or underscore this right now? And to answer that question, I would take you to 1 Thessalonians 4. If you don't want to turn there, I can just read it to you. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing. That you do so more and more. Progress in holiness, progress in service of the Lord is often something that can happen in bunches. But what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians is you've made progress, you've come this far, you've, you've actually received from us how you ought to walk. Our reception among you has been good and you are walking as you ought and we urge you to do so more and more. Our attention as people and as ministers and as leaders can often be from fire to fire to fire and just putting fires out. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, says, you are making good progress. There's no urgent crisis like there was in Corinth. Continue in it. The enemy can often capitalize on a sense of making progress and that we need not continue. He can whisper or give you the sense that, well, you're doing great. There's no reason to press on and to urge and to strive anymore. You're doing fine. And I say that with the deepest sense of appreciation and gratitude that there has been an intense overflowing of service and sacrifice on the part of so many. But the pathway to sloth begins with the phrase, I'm doing enough. And this is not a passionate appeal to ask you to do more. Don't hear that this morning. I'm trying to help us think rightly. The analogy would be as of an airplane, as it gets off the runway, it's made a great liftoff or takeoff. But you still got to get to 10,000 feet cruising altitude. There is much more elevation needed to make that final progress. So what is Paul saying? What's the context of all this? Uh, but actually, before I get to the context, let me just say this, just as an aside. You can exhaust yourself in all the wrong ways. What I am saying today is not to make you burn yourself out and sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry. I want to be very careful here. And so as we look at what Paul is saying in context, I hope that we see exactly what he's asking the Corinthians to do. 
Even though this might be called a topical message, you know, versus what we do regularly in going through Hebrews, I do want to preach exactly what Paul is meaning to say by this verse. It's not like I have a topic and came and picked this verse. I found this verse, I read it again after not having read it for a while, and that stirred in me these desires to say these things. What Paul is doing, beginning in chapter 12 and going through to the end of chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians, is the church in Corinth had abused spiritual gifts. And it was rooted in a misunderstanding of why those spiritual gifts were given in the first place. There is so much to cover in chapters 12 through 14, and we're not going to do that today. Maybe one day we can do an extended sermon series on 1 Corinthians. In all my time, I've only seen one pastor preach a sermon series through 1 Corinthians because there are just too many landmines and problem texts, I think. But maybe one day we'll get to it. But what you need to know is that verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 12 functions as a type of unifier for all three chapters. Along with, if you go back to chapter 12, verse 7, this is the first unifier. Chapter 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so what he details and what he says, what he teaches between verses 12, 7 and verses 14, 12 and to the end of 14 is kind of built between these two ideas. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And verse, chapter 14, verse 12. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. They're essentially the same idea. They're nuanced a little bit differently but they're the same idea. So these two verses together, I believe, offer a summary of how we should look at and understand what God is doing in our hearts as believers and understand how we should see His work among us. So let's begin looking at it Phrase by phrase. He says, so with yourselves. Literally, you could phrase it, so with each of you individually together. This is this word here that he uses for yourselves is plural. um, But it carries the sense of you yourselves together. And the reason I'm making a point of this, it's the same word, it's used throughout the New Testament, but it's the same word that Jesus uses when he asks the disciples, but who do you say that I am? He's not just interested in who Peter thinks he is, he is interested in that, but not just what Peter thinks he is, but he's also not just interested in a consensus opinion of the apostles. He's interested in what each of them together think about Jesus and who they say that he is. And this is important because it harkens back to 12.7. So to each of you. So it's all of us individually, but all of us together at the same time. It's kind of a plural singular sense. It also clarifies how we should be thinking about the nature of spiritual gifting and service to the Lord. Yes, it is a matter of what is going on in ourselves. 
how you focus on serving the Lord. And you ought to focus on serving the Lord regardless of what others around you are doing. But at the same time, it is all of us together. What we can tend to say, we've got to hold these two ideas together because what characterizes the spirit of the age is this statement. Why isn't someone doing something about this problem that I see? That's the spirit of the age. Why isn't someone doing something about this problem that I see? You can spend five minutes on Facebook or any other social media platform. That is the spirit of the age. And that ought not characterize the people of God. When we see a problem, when we see an issue, we are ones who in prayer and urgently go and address the issue insofar as we are made able by his grace. At the same time, it's all of us together. The whole idea is that each part of the body ought to function in a way that is harmonious and helpful to each other. I want to brag on my wife for a little bit, and she hates this, but when she was a teenager, she was a part of the Fort Worth Youth Symphony Orchestra, and she played violin, and she's no longer able to do so consistently because she has tendonitis in her shoulder, but She related to me, I forget exactly when this was, but she talked about how great it was to be a part of an orchestra. And that as you're sitting there together in this room and the conductor is moving you each to play your part well, that the sum is greater than the addition of its parts. That you can be part of something bigger than just adding everyone's instrument together. What if you went to an orchestra and each person just played their favorite song that they were the best at playing the whole time? What would that sound like? Terrible. The modern musicians may really like it as an experiment in psychology, but it would not be enjoyable to listen to. So what we're doing together as a family of believers is more like an orchestra. Yes, we should all seek to be very skillful, but we should seek to do what is harmonious and functions well together as a family, as an orchestra playing a symphony. And even if that means that your part is to wait measure after measure after measure after measure until finally the person who composed the music, puts your part there, then you play it well. And you, all of you together, build something that's more beautiful than what each of you doing even your best could do by yourselves. And that, I'll just say, is a shameless plug also for Handel's Messiah that I announced in the beginning. If you want to come be a part of that and see that really in one of the best pieces of music ever written, come talk to me afterwards. So we should pay close attention to the development and strengthening of our own skills and talents and gifting. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Fan into flame the gift that has been given to you by the laying on of hands. But the point is that we can function as a family, as a body, as an orchestra, in harmony with each other. 
Even if that means, like I said, we don't get to play the exact song we want to play. Even if that means we don't get to play for that time our favorite piece. So, with yourselves, all of you together and each one of you individually, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. Literally, you could translate it this way. Since you are so zealous for the things of the Spirit, or since you eagerly want spiritual gifts. The ESV translation that I'm reading from underscores the linguistic and theological connection to chapter 12, verse 7, by bringing in this word, manifestation. In, verse, in chapter 12, verse 7, Paul uses this Greek word, phenerosis, meaning exhibition or expression or bestowment or manifestation. And he only uses it in one other place in all of his letters. It's 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But, and here comes that word, by the open statement of the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So that by that open statement, a clear presentation of the truth of the gospel, this manifestation of the gospel, that's what Paul points to as the legitimacy of his ministry. So that same word is here and in Paul's mind as he is talking about what it means to witness the outpouring of the Spirit. It's very visible. It's very powerful. It's very clear. The reason why I brought in the meaning of that word is to raise this question in your minds that each of you should be asking and be serious about. Are you zealous for manifestations of the Spirit? Are you zealous for the things of the Spirit? Or am I just eager to show off my gifting? Am I just eager to deal with this sense of guilt I have? Or am I just eager to exercise the gifts I think I have because I feel an urgency to do so? If you're familiar with chapters 12 through 14, you can almost hear a lovingly sarcastic tone in what Paul is saying. Because he's addressing a church where there are massive abuses and misunderstandings of what the spiritual gifts are and how they function within a church. And so he says to them, since you're so eager for manifestations of the Spirit, do you hear that tone in there? That's what he's saying. And maybe because he doesn't know each one of them personally, he's been gone for a while. Maybe it's also just a challenge, like a judgment call for each person to make of themselves. It carries the sense of if, if you are really eager, if you're, if you are really zealous for the things of the spirit, then this, what he's about to say. So he's essentially giving them a spiritual gut check. You say you're eager to have the things of the Spirit, a manifestation of the Spirit, spiritual gifts, then listen to what I'm about to say. 
And then he says this, strive to excel in building up the church. Literally, it could be said this way. Each of you seek to be excellent at building up the church. Or this way, build up the church, seeking eagerly to abound in this skill. This is the answer to the question, what must I do? Paul, if I am eager for the things of the Spirit, if I am zealous for the things of the Spirit... You say you want to experience the grace of the Holy Spirit. You say you want to receive a manifestation of His power. You say that you want to see the Spirit move powerfully among you and through you. Then you ought to make this your aim. Strive to be the best possible person at building up the church. I want to say a few words about this phrase, strive to excel before we unpack build up the church and what that means. Strive to excel. It's a very short phrase. And in this short phrase, there is such clarity and peace and safety even. We live in an age where the number of choices for your life path are numerous. There are so many paths in front of you, especially you young people. And there is pressure on you young people to decide exactly what you're going to do and your trajectory in life and how you're going to get there before you're 19. Our world gives you all the choices. And in fact, anything that would take choices away from you, take opportunities away from you, is seen as evil in this day and age. But this phrase... This little bitty phrase, strive to excel, gives us all the clarity and definition and peace that we need. We wonder sometimes why our young people can become so disenchanted and jaded with life at such a young age even, when we give them all that they want and need. This is the number of choices and the encouragement to explore all the choices is at least part of the problem. This phrase, strive to excel. The phrase in Greek could be read, strive to be super abounding in this. Few stories in the Old Testament to give meaning to this, to strive to excel. When God began to call on his people to bring together the materials to build the tabernacle, or when Nehemiah was so convicted and sorrowful over the state of Jerusalem and that the wall had been torn down, they changed everything about their lives. And you see this echoed in Acts chapter 2 when they realize what God has done in their midst and what Jesus has done through the gospel. They naturally and graciously began to strive to excel in building up the church. Revival would surely be near to each of us if even our young people, based on the joy and delight in their parents, began to answer the question, so what do you want to do when you grow up? With a glad and eager statement with beaming eyes, I want to strive to excel in building up the church. 
I want to build the church of God. I want to seek the kingdom. I want to strive to excel in that. All of your talents, all of your skills, all of your creativity, and all your professional work have a direction and trajectory now. Strive to excel in building up the church. Now, to this phrase, build up. This is not a sermon meant to make you realize how important it is for you to give financially, though that's important. This is not what this message is about at all. It's not even a sermon about encouraging you to invite your friends to church, though that's important. It's not even a sermon about going and telling people about Jesus, though that is absolutely essential, and we spent a whole week in training to help us be better at that. What Paul means by building up the church can be found in 1 Corinthians 13. I'll just read the entirety of the chapter to you. And I'll actually begin at the last of chapter 14, which, uh, 12, which should be the first verse of chapter 13. And I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Also, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, is it, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, preacher man, have you been saying all this just to come to the big finale? Love one another? Yes. Yes, I am. Pretty much. Sadly, many of us defi define spirituality otherwise. 
when, if someone were to ask you, what is true spirituality? Many of us would say a lot of true things, but we wouldn't rest it all on this statement, love one another. It's not merely an emotional thing as our culture defines it. It's not primarily a feeling, though that's important. You can go to 1 John 3. This is another 3.16 that you should all have memorized. 1 John 3.16-19. through 19. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love, not in word or talk, and you could add even there emotion, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before God. Do you want confidence and peace knowing that you have truly come to know the Son of God in spirit and truth? Love one another. For love is of God. So, build up the church in love. This is how the, love, the church actually builds itself up. Through love. The reason you have the skills you have is to build up the church in love. The reason you have the talents you have is to build up the church in love. The reason you have the money you have is to build up the church in love. The reason you have the life you have is to build up the church in love. And I would offer here a few clarifications. It's not primarily talking about the moving of the machine or the organization of the church itself. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the one that you are to build up. All of us together as a family. This building could go away, vanish in a day, and the church would still be here. That eternal spiritual church that unites us together, that which we are a part of, the body of Christ even, that is what you are to build up. It's not about, uh, it's about you and your brothers and sisters becoming more like Jesus. That's the test of real love. If If the way you love a person leads you and them to become more like Jesus, that's what real love is. It's not just feeling a certain way about the people that you go to the same church with. If you really have love towards them, if you're walking in love with them, both of you will begin to become more like Christ. What does it look like for you to live your life directed towards excelling in the building up of the church? Just like Paul says, the love of Christ controls us or compels us be reconciled to God that we are so moved and so shaken and changed by the fact that God has loved us and that we now because of his love can love him that it changes everything we do and that we can say as Paul says that his motive towards the church is to present everyone mature in Christ 
Before we move to objections, I want to talk about the church just a little bit. The word here is ecclesia, the called out ones, the assembly. Everything we said a few weeks ago about the kingdom applies to this. It is a glorious thing. It is not just North Star Baptist Church. It's not just the Baptists. It's not just Protestants. It is everyone who believes in Jesus as Lord and has repented of their sins. That is the church. In the context of this phrase, build up the church, do you remember someone else who said they would build up the church? Jesus. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So when you devote your life to build up that church, that universal church that has existed for all time and will exist for all time, you join Jesus Christ in his mission. If you've ever been in the water or uh, done any water sports and You've seen the people who have two uh, wakeboards or kneeboards or inner tubes behind the same boat. What generally happens when two things are being pulled by the same thing? They come together. So you, if you latch your life onto building up the church, you will find yourself coming closer and closer to Jesus Christ himself. He is out in the world by his spirit building up his church. And you and me, we're invited to join into that vein. And we can experience His power and His Spirit and His fellowship even as we join Him in His work. That's why He died. He died so that He could create for Himself this new community of faith. And maybe some of you, you don't believe in him. This is the invitation that not just that you could believe in Jesus and be forgiven of your sins, but actually join him in his mission to bring his children to glory. He deals with our sin and forgives us and purifies us, not so that we could just be in some waiting pattern until he comes so that we can join him and work with Him and give our lives even as He gave His life for us to bring us to glory, we can give our lives to bring ourselves and others to glory. You have been invited to take part in building the one thing on this planet that will not be utterly destroyed by fire. Think about that. You get to participate in your life. It is immediately accessible to you to build the one thing on this planet that will not be utterly destroyed by fire on the last day. When you think about legacy and life goals and what your life should be about, if there is only one thing that's going to survive the judgment day, the church of Jesus Christ then shouldn't you make your life about that? This isn't radical at all. It's the only thing that makes sense if you really believe in the reality of the return of Christ in Judgment Day. It's not radical at all. It seems radical, even to people who have been in Christ for a long time. This true, full devotion to the building up of the body of Christ, that can seem radical, but it's the only way of life that makes sense. 
Now to a few objections. This is a very Puritan structured message here. First objection. But I am so tired. How can I build up the church? How can I strive to excel in building up the church? I am so tired. My encouragement would be this. Press into the Lord. His mercies are new every morning. He gives special grace, a special manifestation of the Spirit to those who join Him in this work. In Mark's Gospel, when the apostles ask Him, see, we have left everything for you. What will be our reward? He says, I tell you the truth, no one who has left mother or father or lands or families, and he goes down the list, will not receive a reward in this life and in the next. Many of us aren't being asked to abandon mother or father or family. We're being asked maybe to skip a meal or lose a few hours of sleep. And many of us hope that we would be able to endure if we were asked, called upon to stand for Christ, if, even if it cost our lives. But many of us, including myself, at many points are not willing even to forego a meal for the sake of the church. So some of this is an issue of priorities. Jesus doesn't promise to give you grace so that you won't be tired if you binge watch your favorite series. He promises grace and mercy and his mercy is being renewed every day for those who build his church. But also, some of this is making sure that you are doing it out of love for God first. The promise is that you will enter a deeper experience of his grace as you enter his work because you love the Lord, not out of a sense of obligation or duty or guilt, but out of love. The love of Christ controls us, compels us to do this. There is a place and a time for getting your affairs in order. Even the, or, the orderliness of a man's household is the first and foremost qualification for even being a leader in the church. But at the same time, think about this. And this is all an answer to the objection, I'm so tired, I don't have anything to give. Turn to Romans 12. I'm sorry, Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. This is one of the most comforting passages for any Christian throughout all the ages. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Many of you might ask, well, in what sense am I going to suffer with Christ? Many of you have been given an opportunity, an immediate leap from your organization of your life to build up the church. And it will be a sacrifice. 
It will be hard. The whole point, or one of the points that we should take from Job, is that faithfulness to God in the midst of suffering is what proves the goodness of God to the angels and to all who behold us, his people. If it were easy to be holy, if it were easy to do all the things that relate to building up the church, then Paul wouldn't need to say, strive to excel, and he wouldn't say, in your wrestle against sin. It's meant to be difficult. It brings God more glory when it's difficult. And when you say, I know it's hard, I know it will call for sacrifice, but I love God and my fellow brothers and sisters so much that I will give. And your fellowship with Christ depends on it. Also, 2 Corinthians 12, we can go back to the passages we've been talking about. 2 Corinthians 12, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, no. (laughs) So this is the 28th lesson or sermon I've had this week, so just extended a little bit of grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He's talking about his thorn. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Many of us, including myself through significant seasons of life, have felt void in the department of the power of Christ. And maybe that's because we resist serving, we resist loving our brothers and sisters because we feel like we're so weak and we don't have anything to give. And this is the point Paul is making. God brought me low so that as I obey Him, as it is difficult in me obeying Him, this power of Christ would rest on me and Jesus would receive the glory and not myself. That I would know and that everyone else I'm serving would know, this isn't Paul. This is God Himself loving me through Paul. Objection two. But I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. That objection misunderstands the whole point of having spiritual gifts in the first place. It is so much less about what your gifts are and so much more about depending on the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who provides the sufficiency and he is the one who compels us and gives us a sense of God's love. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that way we know and experience the power of God as we go out and even in places and ways where we feel inadequate and not gifted, not skilled and not talented, we can serve and love and the power of God rests on us in ways that we have never experienced before. Do you see a problem that needs addressing? A great problem. 
then if you're compelled like Nehemiah when he sees the problem and he's broken because he knows why the problem is there in the first place because the people have sinned against God, then he takes it upon himself. He doesn't receive a vision. No angel visits him. God doesn't speak to him from heaven. He sees a problem. He's moved through conviction of the Holy Spirit and goes and does something about it. All through prayer. And I would argue that's the very definition of an adventurous life. Seeing and identifying a problem, a real need, and then taking it upon yourself as the everyman, as the one who doesn't have the skills and the abilities, and doing what's necessary and striving to go and address it. It's also a confusion of what it will feel like to walk in obedience. I've already mentioned a few things about this. It will hardly ever be easy. And the Lord does not want it to be. That would be no advantage to his glory in your life. You ever wonder why God doesn't just send perfect, sinless angels to be his ministers on the earth? Beings who don't get tired, don't get hungry, don't sin. And they can preach the gospel. An angel will come and preach the gospel over the entire earth at the close of days. Why doesn't he do that? Because it brings him more glory to use earthen vessels. To use broken clay pots to hold the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in our inadequacy, in our weakness, in our lack of skills and giftings, we bring the treasure of God's gospel to people so that the glory will be to the Lord, not to us. Just because you're an introvert, does that mean you're off the hook of going out and loving people and making people feel welcome? No. Just because you struggle to relate to certain age groups, does that mean that if someone is alone or isolated and they're in that age group that you have trouble relating to, that it's not your responsibility to go and bring them back in? Just because you're inclined to be contemplative, leave me alone with my books, does that mean that you are not supposed to go out and serve and get your hands dirty? No. And I would say, and I don't know if this will shock any of you, but those three are me. I'm generally more introverted. I struggle to relate to certain people. And I'm inclined to say, leave me alone with my books. But it doesn't matter. And in my struggle against myself, in putting aside these things that I would otherwise like to do because of the gospel, Jesus receives the glory and his power rests on me. Insofar as I obey him. Objection number three. But how can I help anyone? My life is a mess. Some of you do need to get some things straightened out before you can legitimately begin to help. There is a time and a season for healing and getting things straight. Do you remember what happened to Elijah? The prophets of Baal begin to look for him and Jezebel wants to kill him. And he runs all the way from Israel down to Mount Sinai and he speaks with the Lord and he says, I'm the only one left. 
And they seek my life. And Elijah even comes to the point where he asks the Lord to take his life. Do you know how God responds? He lets him sleep and he feeds him. And then he tells him, go back the way you came. Some of you need an extended season of spiritual napping, if you will. And getting healthy before you can go back to Israel and serve as a prophet. So to speak. And also the thief referenced in Ephesians. Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor doing honest work so that he might have something to give to those in need. So while he's a thief, he's not in a situation where he can help anyone. He's stealing from other people so that he can see to his own needs. Let him no longer steal, rather let him labor doing honest work so that he might have something to give to those in need. So some of you might be in that situation. Your life might be so messy that you can't legitimately go out and help someone. But do not linger in those seasons. By his strength, you can get back on track and serve one another and have something to give. Even if your life is a mess, it's probably not as chaotic as the Apostle Paul's. When he writes the majority of his letters that make up a bulk of the New Testament, where is he? He's in prison. And he's depending on other people outside the prison to send him rations so that he doesn't die. And in that state, unable to even see to his own needs, in prison, shamed and hunted, he is ministering to Christians for thousands of years through the writing of his letters. Regardless of how messy and chaotic your life is, it's probably not as chaotic and messy as David's when he wrote many of the most beautiful psalms we have that have encouraged Christians for generations and generations and we will sing forever while Saul is hunting him, while he's even having to blend in with the Philistines to avoid being killed, while he's hiding in the cleft of the rock, running for his life. That's when God uses him to write these psalms that we call the treasury of David. Last objection. But we are a small church, and we don't have the ministries I would love to serve in. I would just encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 in their entirety and see how chapter 13, in his emphasis on love, is his better way. His solution to the problem of misunderstanding what your gifting is and how you ought to use it is to major on love, to love one another. It's in the middle for a reason. You can love one another. And here's just a few ways. Almost all of you, without exception, have a living room and a kitchen. It may not be pretty. It may not be nice. But that doesn't matter. Many of the most meaningful spiritual experiences Beth and myself have had have been in either inviting people into our homes, even back when we had a one-bedroom apartment and the kitchen was just barely separated from the living room, and in being invited over to people's houses. Hospitality is such an undercurrent of the gospel, it's hard to underestimate. 
So that's the first, hospitality. And all of you can pray. This is, again, another shameless plug for our Wednesday night prayer meeting. You can pray for your brothers and sisters. And if you would wish that God would move powerfully in their lives, God more desires to answer your prayers to bless than just to bless. Does that make sense? God is the type of being who is more desirous to bless someone in answer to prayer than just to bless someone. That's the type of God we serve. So we should pray. We should devote ourselves to prayer as the first church. Just a few more points and we will be done. Thirdly, practically, all of you are more creative than I am in planning and organizing. And the ministry of the word needs supplemental help of people who are more organized and creative than the one preaching. There are dozens of little and big things that you can do and have a massive impact on guarding and protecting the sacredness of the ministry of the word. So the four most important things in the life of the church, all of you can do them. Love one another, show hospitality, pray for one another, and guard the preaching of the word. So, in conclusion... For those of you who are married, take some time this week and in the following weeks and ask this question with your spouse. What changes do we need to make so that we can strive together as a family to build up the church? As an individual, honestly answer this question. Do my life goals and dreams sound anything like strive to excel in building up the church? Also, each of you should demand that I equip you for the work of ministry and pray that you would get out of me what God has put in me so that you may be equipped for the work of ministry. Also pray. I can't emphasize that enough. Also, do you see a problem? Do you see an issue? Be like Nehemiah. Be willing to be moved by a problem or an issue and then be willing to let your whole life plans be totally changed as you seek to meet that need or problem or issue. Also, be patient as we try to work together as a family, as an orchestra, as a symphony together. Be patient. And lastly, serve the Lord with gladness. Not out of a sense of obligation or fear or judgment from others. Serve the Lord with gladness in the myriad of ways you can now by the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things you can do now. Every person in here, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. That's what we need in our midst. That's what we must be to each other. Let us pray.